Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. When a prominent public figure makes anti-Semitic or racist comments on social media, it can open the floodgates for others to do the same. Brendan Lance is assistant professor and director of the Hate Crime Research and Policy Institute at Florida State University. He says that extremist groups can piggyback onto that media presence and the social influence of the celebrity. In a recent PolitiFact article, Lance had the following to say, They can leverage his words, they can express support for him, and they can use his words to promote their own beliefs. He's speaking there of the musical artist formerly known as Kanye West. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about anti-Semitism today and how we teach the history of the Holocaust and Nazi racism's connection to American Jim Crow laws. The conversation was part of a panel that I moderated connected to the screening of a new documentary miniseries called The U.S. and the Holocaust. It's directed by Ken Burns, Lynn Novick, and Sarah Botstein. Here's an excerpt with Otto Frank, the father of Anne Frank. The world around me had collapsed when most of the people of my country turned into hordes of nationalistic, cruel, anti-Semitic criminals. I had to face the consequences. And though this hurt me deeply, I realized that Germany was not the world and I left forever. By the time Otto Frank photographed his family, he and Edith were already planning to move to Amsterdam in the Netherlands. By early 1934, they would be living in a spacious, sunny apartment in the city's river quarter, alongside hundreds of other Jewish families from Germany. They would eventually try to seek a safe haven in the United States, only to find, like countless others fleeing Nazism, that most Americans did not want to let them in. The panel was recorded in front of a live audience, and it featured guests who are working to broaden our understanding of the impact of Nazi racism and Jim Crow laws. Christina Chavaria is program coordinator for the William Levine Family Institute for Holocaust Education at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Jeffrey A. Fletcher is executive director of the Ruby and Calvin Fletcher African American History Museum in Stratford, Connecticut. He recently completed a 20-year career as a New Haven police officer. Aya Marchik is curriculum development fellow at the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies at Yale University. We started our discussion with Aya. Asked her why it's important to make the material at the Fortunov Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies available to students and educators across Connecticut. This archive started in 1979 as a community grassroots organization, 
And that's that's really important in terms of how it evolved and that the way that, you know, survivors themselves attempted to tell these stories, asking themselves, how do we find a, a way, a method to preserve these histories? And then in my role, then there's a, a stewardship to preserving, to, to making the collections available to teachers, to students, and preserving that spirit in which the collection originally emerged, which was essentially the survivor experience is at the center of it, and we are mindful both of what can be known and what can never be known, right? This imperative, we must know about the Holocaust, and yet no matter how much we try, we can never fully know it, those of us who are not there. And so in all the educational work that we do, that runs through it to try to bring that spirit and that experience um, to, to our classrooms. Christina, you work at the United States Holocaust Museum, and a lot of people, I remember when the museum first opened, a lot of people said, why this mission? Why this approach? And the work you're doing now to say, if we don't address this, this is what happens when that kind of degradation goes unchecked. How do you connect people to understanding that so that they connect in the work that you're doing in so many different spaces? The film, as we saw, starts off with a personal story. And that is a story that is very familiar to us, um, the story of, of the Frank family. So one of the ways that we connect is through the personal stories, the personal histories. Because again, as Daniel Mendelssohn so eloquently said in the film, it's hard for us to envision six million, but we can envision a personal story and we can connect to those personal stories. And that's what is so important about the Fortunoff archive and the archives that we have. But also the museum, as you've touched on, many people in the beginning questioned why have a Holocaust museum in the United States and especially on the National Mall when we didn't at the time have any kind of memorial or museum to episodes in American history. We exist partly because we are a reminder as visitors come to Washington DC and they walk among the monuments to American democracy, we serve as a reminder of how fragile democracy is. And it's something that we have seen grow. A lot of people could not connect to that idea, but in the last few years, it's something that we're seeing um, more relevance to, unfortunately. Jeffrey, I wanna ask you this question. I wanna know how you go from a 20-year career in law enforcement to now opening this museum and this collection here in Stratford and telling these stories of African-American history and the connections to these broader notions that we saw some glimpse of it in the film, in the documentary, but people are saying they're continuing to live that. So why make that transition from law enforcement to launching this museum? So the motivation uh, after law enforcement uh, stemmed from my mom and my dad, who grew up in South Carolina during the 1930s. So the parallel of when they were growing up, Jim Crow was alive and well. And as African Americans were making the big migration from the South, from the 30s, and coming to all parts of the country, one of the things that I find that is a, is a, 
is a parallel is what was going on in Europe and what was going on here in these United States. When people come to the museum, one of the stories that I tell them is how my mom left South Carolina, Camden, South Carolina, as a 16-year-old. And she ended up in a place called Colchester, Connecticut, which was inhabited by Russian Jews. She was taken in by Russian Jews. And, and I tried not to get, I said I was not going to get emotional. Um, because her story is how she was taken in um, by this Jewish family. And I tell people very clearly, she wasn't taken in as a domestic. She was taken in to be educated, not only about her culture, her history, but their faith, their family, and told to never forget not only her history, her culture, but never to forget the Jewish culture. Because I tell people, I have the best of both worlds. We were raised as Baptist Protestants, but we were also raised uh, uh, in the Jewish faith. And, um, and I tell people I spent more time in the temple than I did in church. So that was my motivation. Once uh, I left the law enforcement, it was like an epiphany that my mom and my dad reached back and they said, you know, you have to take her collection that she started as a child from South Carolina and to enhance this collection and to bring it forward to tell the story. And as I was invited to uh, sit on this panel, I, I thought many, many days and many nights of what was going on in Nazi Germany um, and what was happening in Jim Crow South. And there was such a contrast, such a, a paralyzation um, that there was on the other side of the hemisphere these atrocities, these uh, deprivations of life that were occurring as well as here. And we often get into these conflicts and these conversations about the Holocaust versus lynching, right? But they both have the same um, uh, meaning. They have the same uh, uh, ending, end point. So that's uh, what drove me from law enforcement into where I am today, which is my passion. I, I want to go to a point that I've heard through all three of you, and that is the importance of having intergenerational, multi-generational conversations. How are the archives rooted in, connected to survivor communities that are right here in Connecticut, in New Haven, helping to document their experience and sharing it with the next generation of students and educators to continue that multi-generational engagement for survivors. We, we have two projects underway now uh, as far as curriculum. And one is really speaking very closely to this experience of connections and parallels um, in race laws in the 1930s between Nazi Germany and Jim Crow. Uh, and that starts with the testimony of Dr. Leon Bass, and uh, who was a black soldier who came with the segregated army to Buchenwald and saw Buchenwald as the ultimate endpoint of racism. He, his family was from South Carolina. He moved to Philadelphia, was born there, and he, throughout his life after the war, he kept exploring those connections and exploring what are the parallels, what are the differences. And so in the curriculum, we try to engage young people in doing that. Um, so part of that is reflecting on their own experiences and really thinking very carefully, what does it mean to compare? How do we begin doing that? Um, and the second way of, of trying to engage more closely to your question of, of engaging young people in, in reflecting about themselves and, and their own communities is we're trying to bring out the fortune of interview method into learning materials. 
part of that is because, you know, the moment in the pandemic, we all need to be with each other. We all have lost our ability to listen to some extent, right? And so there is something to say for looking at hard histories. How do we listen to these histories? What does it take, right, to really stop and suspend maybe what we expect and listen for the surprising new information or, or experiences? And so we're trying to convey that in the lesson materials, both the, the substance of it, of that history, where it comes from, but also the process of listening to each other and each other's stories in ways that hopefully can be deeper, more present, more, more aware of each other. Christina, let's continue that line because here's what I'm struggling with. It is important to tell history, to understand history and all of its ugliness and all of its complexities. And yet we're in a moment in the United States where there seems to be resistance to telling history in its complexities, in its authentic telling, even in that ugliness. And so while we have this hope and this expectation that young people will engage, will understand and help us stay true to that idea of never forgetting, we're seeing attacks across the country to remove that kind of history from curricula with the idea that young people, it's too difficult for them. How is the work that you're doing trying to push back against that idea that you have to wait to learn history, that we have to wait until you're an adult and mature enough to engage as opposed to let's meet young people where they are so that they can be brought in much sooner? I'm glad you asked that question because I was going to just say we have to meet young people where they are. For example, when there are episodes in the United States where prominent people make statements that are harmful, for example, we don't come out and necessarily state an opinion on it, but what we do through social media and through other ways of communication is we will put out information on that particular theme that somebody might bring up and we will really blast out there the correct information about it. We're working very hard to take some of what we produced um, that can help students learn more uh, media literacy and to understand that history is sometimes, it's what we see happening in Europe, for example, um, and in different parts of the United States is this, is the sanitizing of history because we don't want to hurt people's feelings or we don't want to make somebody feel responsible for something that happened decades before they were born. And it's, it's not an easy task, but what we do at the museum is we make sure that we are straightforward about the history. We're not giving an opinion. This is historical fact. The Holocaust is the best documented example of genocide. It's not to say that that it was the worst example, but it was the best documented. And so we want to make primary sources more available, more accessible online. We also want young people to be able to address some of these conspiracy theories that they hear about, especially around anti-Semitism. And it's very important that we address anti-Semitism. We see a rise in anti-Semitic acts um, that have led to great tragedy, um, 
more recently in the United States, um, the Tree of Life synagogue shooting, for example, the episode earlier this year in Texas, which is my home state, um, in Colleyville, Texas. And so what we try to do is to inform young people, but everybody, that anti-Semitism takes on different forms. And we have to work closely to make sure that, that we're showing that this, this happened and it was documented and using those documents in any history is very important. And I just wanna say one more thing with speaking about the Jim Crow laws here in the United States. We make it very clear that, that the Jim Crow laws like Nazi racial ideology came from the concept of eugenics at the time. And we have, to, we have to look at the historical facts and the documentation. And that's one of the ways that it's important to, to push back against the pushback that we're getting in teaching history accurately, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. That was Christina Chavarria from the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Jeffrey A. Fletcher is executive director of the Ruby and Calvin Fletcher African American History Museum. And Aya Marchik is from the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies at Yale University. When we return, we'll hear more from this panel, including how Fletcher used cyber technology to infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week, we're listening to a conversation I moderated following a screening of the new PBS documentary miniseries, The U.S. and the Holocaust. We were joined by Aya Marchik of the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies at Yale University. Christina Chavarria is of the William Levine Family Institute for Holocaust Education at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. And Jeffrey A. Fletcher is of the Ruby and Calvin Fletcher African American History Museum in Stratford, Connecticut. In the 1930s, as Germany was laying the groundwork for the persecution of the Jewish community, Nazis were looking toward the United States and our Jim Crow era laws. Yale Law professor James Q. Whitman wrote about this in his 2017 book, Hitler's American Model. Whitman says that Germans were fascinated by the United States, 
The Third Reich used our laws to legitimize their own race-based initiatives. The Nazis, in turn, had a powerful influence here in the United States. One of the moments in the documentary that stuck out to me came during an event for a group of Nazi supporters that was held in New York City. I want to caution our listeners that this next section contains anti-Semitic language. No group was more adamantly opposed to admitting Jewish refugees than the German-American Bund. 20,000 members would fill Madison Square Garden on Washington's birthday. They were led by Fritz Kuhn, a German immigrant who fancied himself the American Fuhrer. What we are actively fighting for under our charter, first, a social, just, white, Gentile ruled United States. Second, Gentile-controlled labor union, free from Jewish Moscow-directed domination. Other speakers railed against the president, Frank D. Rosenfeld, and his Jew deal. We only call upon our leaders to awake to the fact that the Jew is as alien in body, mind, and soul as any other non-Aryan, and that he is a thousand times more dangerous to us than all the others by reason of his parasitic nature. The documentary overall was powerful and very difficult to watch. But this particular section of the film really stood out to me. It included images and video of these very well-dressed women, women wearing beautiful dresses and ball gowns and long gloves. And they're sitting there listening intently to this hateful language. And it made me wonder, where do they go when they leave the arena? Are they teachers? Are they police officers or bankers? Because that kind of hate doesn't stay in the arena. I thought about how the Klan would take off their Klan robes and put on their badges or their judges robes or their ministerial robes. Ask Jeffrey A. Fletcher if we underestimate the role of the Klan in reinforcing the hatred that's directed toward both African-American people and Jewish people in the U.S. The Klan, white nationalism, they have infiltrated every part of our society that we kind of know of, right? And um, no longer are hoods, robes, crosses, they're burned, but no longer is traditional garb being worn. Um, if we think about law enforcement and if we think about the Klan, we have to go back to the days of bounty hunters. And Klan men were deputized as bounty hunters. And so that has been kind of the tradition that has been going on in law enforcement. As we see the, the most recent and one of the latest of uh, several years now, George Floyd killings and massive police shooting of uh, black and brown people across the country, um, it, there's a strong, strong flavor of law enforcement and those vigilante organizations that have infiltrated um, our law enforcement ranks. And we have to remember, too, African Americans have only been 
in the field of law enforcement for 85 years. Think about that, 85 years. Only 85 years, right? Um, there's a program that I do within the uh, museum, which is called the Badge Beneath the Robe. And that, has, that entails uh, using an actual police uniform that goes underneath a Klan robe and a hood that I, uh, when I infiltrated the Ku Klux Klan prior to my retirement in the New Haven Police Department. I'm sorry, you just said that as if you said today was Wednesday. Could you say that again? Was I the only one who thought he just kind of rushed right past that? Well, say that again, please. Well, in, before I retired in 2013, I had infiltrated the Ku Klux Klan. And how I did that, I did it through technology, cyber technology. And I was in a task force that, uh, as a law enforcement officer, we are farmed out to federal agencies. And as my collection that I inherited, uh, unbeknownst to me from my parents, um, I figured that we have to be able to talk about the Klan. But one thing you said, and I think the other panelists said as well, is that we have to be honest and we have to tell the truth. And we cannot fabricate, we cannot water down, we cannot uh, minimize, but we have to be honest because that's what this is about, whether it's anti uh, talking about anti-Semitism or racism amongst uh, uh, black and brown people. But what I did was I went um, on our vigilante site that we can see terrorists, bomb makers, drug dealers, uh, pedophiles, they can't see us. And I realized that in order to tell this story, we have to tell the story of the Klan. And so what I ended up doing was reaching out on this vigilante site and asking for a vintage Ku Klux Klan hood and robe. A week later, I got a hit. It was an 88-year-old white minister from Boone, North Carolina. And one of the things that I had to do was to have him trust in me. And uh, he trusted me for six months. And my, my whole premise to him was that I was a white man trying to build, trying to capture, trying to enforce the philosophies and the, and the, the theories of the Ku Klux Klan by teaching it to young white children. He bit it. He took it for six months. I endured some of the most racial commentary. He never knew who I was, but we went on and on and on through cyber. And uh, finally, after six months, uh, I came from undercover, and I let him know once I had purchased the hood, the robe, and other paraphernalia that he had and he owned. And uh, once he did that, I came out from undercover, and he was very upset about that. So we use, I use that in law enforcement, right? Because when I am contracted to go into police departments by the Justice Department, or I have a case coming up in about two weeks here in Connecticut where an open mic was, was used by two officers. So in this program, I use the badge beneath the robe where I, at the last five, 10 minutes of the workshop for uh, three days, I will bring it out and I will now display the Klan hood and robe and have the badge partially hidden where they can see it. And I let them see this for about five, 10 minutes because I want it to be imprinted in their minds that every time they pull an African-American over or a brown person over for a civil rights violation or violating his or her civil rights or taking their lives, this is how you are perceived as the Klan with the badge beneath the robe. And uh, it's very imprinting in their minds, and that's what they're left with.
I, I know that the Fortune of Archive has this race and citizenship curriculum. It's continuing to work on that and bringing in different partners into that work so that it is telling the truth. I think John Hope Franklin said, we have an obligation to tell the unvarnished truth. It is telling that, but it's also engaging people in different ways of how we tell that truth. How is that curriculum uplifting those goals and values of the archive and also carrying out the things that you've talked about as important for your work? Yeah, so it's, um, there, there's a real community spirit to it, and I would say equitable community spirit to it in the sense that uh, we want to bring scholars, teachers, and students together on an equal footing with everyone having a voice and, and a contribution. One of my favorite moments in this last year and a half of collaborating, working, I hate that word, <laughs> context of this conversation, of working together with teachers was with uh, Colleen, who's here. She teaches eighth graders, and uh, she taught some of this curriculum to her group of eighth graders. And one of the comments from them was that they appreciated that this curriculum doesn't sugarcoat the history, that oftentimes we hear histories in ways that people think we want to hear them, but this it's direct, it's direct and, and that there's power in that. Um, and so what we, we've convened this teacher advisory council where we have teachers from throughout Connecticut, from Philadelphia, from places farther afield to really learn from them, learn what their realities are on the ground, how much they're different local environments in terms of the pushback. Uh, to support each other. We bring these uh, teachers together with scholars, um, not just so they can learn from scholars and historians in terms of the content, but also so we as scholars can learn from them. You know, what is it that that they're dealing with and then how we we can better prepare our own classrooms at the university level for, for students coming in. And then, of course, students are, are part of it along the way. So part of it is, is just the spirit of creating community at every point and then trying to be really aware of including different voices, different perspectives of trying to, to include and invite people from very different contexts. We just had someone join from rural Pennsylvania and for her to, to just say, I've never had this kind of community before because teachers here are thinking very differently. I can't talk like this with my colleagues. Christina, you mentioned what it means to have this museum on the National Mall at sort of the footprint of American democracy and this reminder of not just what we didn't do, but what we can do and what we must do. We've just come through a very contentious midterm election season, but there is this fear and this concern about understanding how fragile democracy is. As you look forward in the future of the work of the museum, this ongoing discussion about democracy here in the US and elsewhere, how does the Holocaust Museum position us to better understand that need to focus? Well, you have to look at what makes a democracy a healthy democracy. And one of the warning signs of the fragility of democracy is when you take a group of people and you isolate them, you marginalize them. That should be the first sign. There are several warning signs, as we call them. When you look at the Holocaust and you look at the work that we do, we don't want to start off with the killing. We know how the Holocaust happened, but what we need to examine is why it happened what led us to that point. 
So the work that we do in part is to look at those warning signs and to make those warning signs known. Um, when you strip away civil rights and civil liberties, when you restrict the, the ability to vote, those are all hallmarks of warning signs of, of a democracy being, being in, in danger. So the work that we do covers many segments at the museum. We have an entire division devoted to working with various segments of law enforcement, all the way from local, um, local uh, police uh, communities across the United States to um, the FBI, the Secret Service, the CIA. And because we need to look and investigate the roles of the different segments of society in this history. It was not only the Nazis that perpetrated this. You had to look at the helpers, the, the people who were complicit, even if they didn't kill anybody themselves, what role did their professions play? What roles did their communities play? So again, we, we focus on the history, but we also, we also promote a lot of critical thinking so that individual people can look for themselves at, at how this is relevant. And, um, you know, we're in a race against time because we are losing our survivors very quickly. And especially as we see um, many countries where this happened take on a more nationalistic tone, where they're rewriting their history to minimize their complicity in this history. Jeffrey, I grew up in rural Virginia, and we were always taught that Connecticut was the North and that these weren't issues that people had to deal with in the North. Anyone else heard that myth, right? Having lived here quite a while, I, I usually call it up South in some ways. It changes. Thinking about the work that you're doing, the exposure and experience that you want people to have, what would be your message for young people in Connecticut about the importance of not just understanding this history, but committing to make a difference. What's the message to young people? Again, they don't need to internalize, um, and they don't need to be fearful of this history. And that's one of the big messages that I put out, especially here in the community. Now, we're not as big as the National Holocaust Museum or these other uh, institutions, so to speak, at Yale. We are fairly new on the scene, kind of new kid on the block, right? So we don't have all of those resources, but we're gaining partners. We're making friends, and it starts here in this community where we are. But I, the message that I give young folks and adults is that you don't need to be fearful of this, this history. And I don't want people, even with my staff, minimal staff that we have, and even on our social media, we make sure that they are not internalizing it. Or I've heard people say, especially African-American young children, uh, high school students, they suffered, this is like PTSD from them, for them. And, you know, I smile, I laugh at that. But I take that serious. And so we need to make our young folks feel comfortable about seeing this history. And so when they come, their parents don't have to worry about them coming home feeling as though they were perpetrators or they had anything to do with what they have seen, some of these harder facts and harder objects in our museum. So the message I, I, I often tell the students, because we are engaged in this community, 
with Stratford High, Bunnell, Fairfield Prep, Bridgeport Academy, and there are a number of schools that we are now connecting with because we are sending that message to the young folks that you don't, you don't have to fear this history. That was Jeffrey A. Fletcher from the Ruby and Calvin Fletcher African American History Museum. Christina Chavaria is from the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. And I am Archik from the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies at Yale University. Coming up, we'll talk about the pressures that teachers face to avoid the backlash of teaching the full history. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. When Hitler came to power at the end of 19... At the end of January 1933, all that changed. Uh, about a month later, uh, I, together with a great many other people, were summarily dismissed because of being Jewish. Uh, and a number of those people with whom residents, interns with whom we had been quite friendly suddenly turned extremely hostile. On the other hand, there were a number of friends of mine who did just the opposite. I mean, German Aryans, and with whom I did remain friends until I left Germany, and who warned me. That's audio of Hans Lowald talking about his medical internship. It's part of the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies at Yale University. This hour, we're listening to a community conversation that I moderated in connection to the new PBS docuseries, The U.S. and the Holocaust. The panelists were Jeffrey A. Fletcher from the Ruby and Calvin Fletcher African American History Museum. Christina Chavaria from the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, and Aya Marchik from the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies at Yale University. This panel was recorded in front of a live audience, and we ended with an audience Q&A. So I'm the director of Jewish Life and Community Relations for the Federation in New Haven, and I was on a call today with uh, Federation professionals around the country talking about education and what they're seeing, especially after the midterms with school board elections and things like this, from South Carolina, where I used to live too, where Holocaust education was accidentally um, banned as part of some proposed legislation, um, you know, regressive education versus the opposite side of the spectrum in other parts of the country. And I'm interested in hearing a little bit about the work of getting Holocaust education as well as you know, African-American history, which we have a mandate here in Connecticut for, into the schools and challenges with school boards, with teachers, with teachers being afraid of getting in trouble for what they teach, what you're seeing on the ground here in Connecticut. I, I, can, I can talk to you a little bit about that. I think what's happening here, especially now that it's mandated here in the state of Connecticut, African-American curriculum, there is a, um, uh, uh, the state has provided for teachers the training uh, to speak about the curriculum. And I think the fear that I'm hearing from teachers who don't look like me, right? Um, the fear of talking and speaking and teaching African-American children, especially in the urban communities, because I, I'm, as I said, I'm involved with 
some of the inner city schools here where white teachers have said to me as recent as last week, um, how do I do this? I got the training, but I told them just as I've been saying all evening, be honest, be open, do not try to fabricate, do not try to make up anything. Be, be honest and say, I don't know, but I'll get the information. Um, and then you have to deal with the schools coming to this type of venue, right? Because this is the only African-American history museum for what I know in the state of Connecticut and possibly New England. But I got something the other day where a school, a district was booked to come to the museum. And the teacher had said that, um, unfortunately, they had to cancel. Right? I'm not sure if you all have ever, heard, ever had that experience, but they canceled, and she put in there, it was kind of like a silent dog whistle in the sense that uh, they couldn't get enough students to come on the field trip. So I had to put my law enforcement cap on a little bit and figure this out. It wasn't the students who weren't motivated to come. It was the parents that did not want to sign the permission slip for them to come. So that's one of the challenges that I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out now how to get around that because I, I believe our children, our young folks, they want to know this stuff. They want to know about the Holocaust. They want to know about Jim Crow and segregation and discrimination. They want to know this stuff. So I, I think the bigger picture is how do we break through to these parents? If I could just add one thing, especially here in Connecticut, I would encourage people to look at the books that are being banned in particular schools and particular districts, because those are the sort of subtle first steps toward erasing that historical reality. When a district or a school or a classroom would ban the diary of Anne Frank, right? That is often an indication of its inability to embrace history but to also have students understand this canonical piece of writing and reflection. That is happening in districts, in suburbs, in rural areas, in urban communities across Connecticut, and I think is, is a symptom of this broader inability to face difficult things, but to also affirm the worth and value of people who may have a different experience. So I'm David Rhodes. I'm with an organization called Facing History in Ourselves. And um, I feel like a lot of what I was hearing just about student agency, how do you center and bring students into real deep conversation around difficult topics? How do you think about choices at different levels? What's happening in society? Um, and how do you look at the signs? How do you look at why things happen? Well, a lot of what we focus on is kind of the pitfalls and the potential of the human psyche and looking at how students can really be trusted to grapple with these questions. And, um, and we have curriculum that we've worked on in partnership with the Holocaust Memorial Museum, with Forstenhoff when it comes to Americans and the Holocaust, when it comes to race and membership and eugenics. You've kind of pointed to the, the ways you approach these questions with students, but if there are specific ways you've seen the impact on students, what does it mean to really center student voice? And have you either directly or through the teachers you've worked with heard about how that plays out for those students and what they take from the kind of approaches to education you've described? The, the way that we're trying to organize the curriculum at Fortunoff is to, one, you know, being aware, one of the pushback against difficult histories, but also the other big trend, of course, is undermining the very idea of facts, of shared facts, right? There's all kinds of misinformation and Holocaust denialism and, and even denialism of the legacies of, of slavery and racism. And so the, 
there's a, a piece of this that's primary sources, that's using text, using links to archives, and getting that moment for students to really encounter things in their primary form. So for example, in the uh, curriculum, we once we look at the Nuremberg Laws, we look at the actual texts, we link them to the German archives that have them in German, we link them to the Library of Congress so they can see them in the Nuremberg trials, and it's not just a paraphrase. Same thing with racist Jim Crow laws. It actually, it was a surprise to me that there isn't more of a depository on a national level that would allow us to collectively look at the Jim Crow laws in their primary form. I, I had a hard time finding this, right? So some of what we do is the Mississippi Constitution from 1890, which is still in effect, right, but has been amended over time. We look at the literacy clause from 1890, we, we look at miscegenation clause, we look at the education clause. They're very short pieces of text, but they are incredibly powerful for students to encounter in that language. We stop to think we, we have a warning. This language is offensive. It will, it will be upsetting to grapple with it, but this is in the Mississippi State Archive. It's for the public to know. It's not, it's not someone's opinion, it's not a paraphrase. So that encounter with the direct language of it, I think, is one of the ways that, that we really try to bring students into a, a, a space where they get to think, they get to stop and think and question. And for me, it, the, the kinds of responses that we get that are really most hopeful in terms of this, this approach working is when students walk away and they keep thinking about it, right? They walk away from these lessons and they come back with questions. Or they walk away in their next unit of study, they will come to the teacher and say, well, I need to see primary sources. I need to see a historical interpretation. And that coming from them is what I think then has us come back and say, what else can we put together? Uh, so, so it's the source that's itself, but then we also, the other piece we try to, to show students is how a historian analyzes the source. Right, so that's often missing from classrooms. Oftentimes they will get primary sources, but it's difficult to show them a historian at work, a small clause, a small claim they made. And you know, that, that small claim takes a hundred different sources maybe to really substantiate. And they delve into a few of them and think about it. And then when they go back to their own arguments with sources, right, we see that now that that, that, that enriches that work with sources and brings it to a, a little more rigor. So, for us at, at uh, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, um, through our student ambassador program, we, we recognize that so many students got lost in, in the haze of, of, of being online during the pandemic and um, became more vulnerable to um, accepting dangerous messages. So we have worked to address with students um, on, especially on, on platforms like TikTok, you know, what, what is anti-Semitic? Because a lot of students didn't realize that what they were falling for was very anti-Semitic. But also going back to using primary sources um, and, and just really thinking about this film, we have an exhibition right now called Americans in the Holocaust, and it was actually the exhibition that inspired the filmmakers to, to make this film. Um, much of the source material that you see in this film comes from the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, and, and two of our historians are featured in it. But the reason why we put this exhibition together was to really look at what potential did citizens, American citizens, or anybody living in the U.S., what was the potential for them knowing what was happening? 
it, it doesn't stand anymore to say that we didn't know what was happening until liberation. So we have created projects where students, and not only students, but anybody who wants to volunteer, can research their local newspaper archives to find articles on what was being reported. And, and this really gets to the notion of when we know something, and, and Dr. Deborah Lipstadt touched on that, just because we know something, do we understand it? And even if we understand it, do we take action on it? That is what's important today. How are we responding to the news? How are we paying attention to it? And making sure that our students understand the difference between opinion, fact, and belief. Um, because that is something that, that we saw fall away during the pandemic. Um, and the fact that students were turning their cameras off and maybe looking at information that could be harmful. We saw a lot of that happen, even with our student ambassadors, and we had to work very, very carefully. Um, so just remembering that, as we said, as, as my colleague Danny Green said in the film, um, you know, we see things in hindsight and we're judgmental of the way that Americans responded to the Holocaust. But this film should get us to think about how we're responding to information. Um, and again, you know, just thinking last week of, of the response to the election, that, that was a positive feeling that, that young people were paying attention. You can find a link to the docuseries, The U.S. and the Holocaust, on our website. It's ctpublic.org slash disrupted. And you can also find it on the PBS app. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Emily Cherish, and Katie Tolarski. Our interns are Taylor Doyle and Jacob Gannon. Special thanks this week to Dylan Reyes, Deidre Tavera, Maureen Connolly, and the event co-sponsors. Thank you to Connecticut Public, Voices of Hope, the Ruby and Calvin Fletcher African American Collection of Stratford, and the Sterling House Community Center, also in Stratford. An additional thanks to the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies at Yale University. You can listen to all of the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.